I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Greeny back and better than ever with I'm Interested, and I could not be more delighted as we continue this season in which I interview some of the legendary voices and chroniclers in all of sports to be talking to one of my mentors and, and one of the real legends in our business and, and in the company that I have worked for now for the last 24 years, and that is Chris Berman, who is my guest today. And I would like to tell you my favorite story about Boomer. Chris Berman is, I think, ESPN's most famous announcer and one of the most important sports announcers um, in, in, in the industry's history because of what ESPN was when he started and what ESPN became and the enormous role that he played in that. Uh, but I would like to tell you a personal story about Chris Berman that will give you an indication of why I care so much for him. So when I first came to ESPN, it was the end of August of 1996. And any of you who know me at all, you, you know that I'm, I'm married for 23 years now. But if you do the math, I came to ESPN a year before I got married. And when I moved to Bristol, Connecticut from Chicago, where I'd been working, I left behind my then girlfriend, Stacy, and um, it was it was difficult to do. She had a successful career and she wasn't going to just sort of pick up and move. We weren't engaged or anything. And so as a consequence of that, I spent I worked weekends when I started at ESPN. My days off were Tuesdays and Wednesdays for about the first year that I was at ESPN. And in those days, I wasn't making very much money at all. And I wanted to fly to Chicago as often as I could to see my girlfriend. And so I would finish work on Mondays and I would drive to Providence, Rhode Island from Bristol, which is about a two hour drive or thereabouts. And the reason I did is because the flights were much cheaper out of Providence and they were out of Hartford, which was much closer. So I get into the car, I would drive to Providence, Rhode Island, I'd fly to Chicago, I'd spend a few days with her, I would fly back and I would anchor on ESPN News. And I was, for a period of time there, I really questioned whether I was doing the right thing. Candidly, with, with making that move in my life, I was doing well in Chicago, I had a career working there, I had a life working there. And here I had picked it all up and had moved all by myself to Connecticut and I'm traveling back and forth like crazy. So it, it was a complicated time in my life. And so one day that I will never forget, I had just landed at Providence. I had raced to the studios at ESPN. I'm trying to get ready to go on the air that evening and do a show. And I'm in the men's room at ESPN and I take my shirt off to shave. I didn't have the beard back then. And I'm shaving in the sink in the bathroom, wearing no shirt. I was 29 years old and the door opens and in walks Chris Berman. And I'm thinking, this is not the way I wanted to meet our most famous person. Like this is Chris Berman. I've been watching him since I'm 12 years old. And he is an icon, a true icon and legend. And I didn't know him at all. I honestly did not know if he'd know who I was. And I just sort of look at him and I nod. And he walks in and he's going about doing what he needs to do in there quickly. And then he comes back up and he's washing his hands and I'm standing there and he turns to me and he says, how you doing, Greeny? Just like that. Called me Greeny. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he knew who I was. And I said, well, actually, uh, Chris, I, I'm kind of tired. I've had a long day. I just flew back from Chicago. I got to do the late show tonight. So I'm just sort of trying to keep myself 
up and, and motivated, which is probably a terrible thing to say to ESPN's most famous person, but I, I'm not very smart and I couldn't think of anything better than that. So that's what I said. And he just sort of nodded at me and he said, and I will never forget this, he said, well, welcome home. Just like that, welcome home. And in that moment, home changed. Up until that moment, Chicago had remained home. I had come to work in Connecticut, but I had never felt like home at all. I felt like I was going back home all those weekends, which were actually Tuesdays and Wednesdays in Chicago. And I was working on the road. Chris Berman saying to me, welcome home, made me realize that this was home now. And it was time to feel that way. And that shift in my psychology, I really think made a huge difference. And I'm not going to say that it was the reason or is the reason that I've gone on and had success at the company, but it didn't hurt. And it also was a wonderful introduction to someone that I have subsequently come to know was just a genuinely great person. So with that as the introduction, it is my thrill to bring Chris Berman in today after I um, remind you uh, that our podcast is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. One more thing to tell you before I bring in Boomer. I want to make sure you're aware of my new TV show. It's called Better Days. It's a wonderful group of stories. It's not about gambling. It's about gamblers and the crazy things they do and the crazy things they say and the crazy ways they feel when they win and maybe more significantly when they lose. And it's streaming now. Better Days, it's called. Better Days, B-E-T-T-O-R Days. Four episodes right now are available only on ESPN+. I'd love you to check them out and let me know what you think. So now that all our business is taken care of, let's get to the main event. Here's the one and only Chris Berman in three, two, one. You know, when I started at ESPN in late August of 1996, I remember walking in and every day looking around me and feeling as though I was surrounded by legends, people that I viewed to be legends in the industry. And among them at that time were Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick and Stuart Scott and Bob Lee and many others. But above them all, without question, was Chris Berman, who, in my opinion, more than any other person, made ESPN what it became and what it is today. It's not to say he did it alone, but I don't think that any other one individual person deserves more credit for what it is that ESPN became and is than Chris Berman does. And I am thrilled to have Boomer Chris Berman with me today. Chris, thank you very much for doing this, and I hope that you're doing well. Doing great, Greeny, and overly gracious with your with your words. I um, <laughs> I don't know if we were if I'm a legend or those of us that began the place were more like survivors. But mm. um, when you came in, I remember you. You're you're still young, but um, you're young, eager, and you haven't changed. And I think that kind of goes for all of us that that have been there from the start. Forty one years, October October first. Don't let them know. They're going to figure it out pretty soon that I shouldn't still be there. Don't let them know that, all right? That's where I wanted to begin. So let's talk about the early days. What do you remember most about the fall of 1979? Well, there were 70 or 80 of us, Max, and that's every job. One building, a lot of rain, mud, unpaved parking lot. First week or two, we still, uh, I was there the third week. I think we still had to uh, go... um, 
use the facilities kind of a an outhouse outside you know what i mean so <laughs> I uh, so how how else can i describe it if it, it was rudimentary however the spirit and so many of us were young and and we were we didn't really have a clue greeny i was 24 bob was 24 tommy Mee's a little bit older than that and th- those are just the announcers i could go on and on with the people behind the scenes 20s maybe 30 most and um but there was professionalism uh, from our management of Chet Simmons and Scotty Connell. But look, we're all sports fans. We knew that this cable TV thing was, well, it seemed like a pretty good idea. Will it be there as an entity, let alone ESPN, in two or three years? I don't know. But we were too busy just trying to stay on the air and, and trying to do our best and make sense. And, and that goes for people not just speaking like your job or my job, but I mean people running cameras in the control rooms, et cetera. And it was, there was a joy to it, partly because, dare I use the word mystery? There was, a, there was so much uncertainty to it, but we didn't, that didn't bother us. We were we were young. We were having fun. And wait a minute. In our particular job, we get to do sports for thirty minutes mm-hmm. on a show. Walter Cronkite only goes thirty minutes mm-hmm. on the news. We just do sports for thirty minutes. Well, that's pretty cool. So if you take it from there as a start, it's a pretty cool job. Even though we had no idea where it was going to lead. But it seemed like a good idea. There were people like us who would want to watch this whenever they were off from work, if you will. And those are the early days. I, I'll sum it up this way, and I don't mean to go on forever, Greedy, but I think you've probably seen it. When I or anybody else who worked in the 80s, and, and I will include the 90s too, which is you, but when we run into someone the first 10, 12 years, and kid could have been in any job. There's a smile that crosses our, uh, my face, and all of our faces because we, we, we put a few bricks, you know, proverbial bricks, you know, in the ground, and, and look what happened. There's a sense of camaraderie to this day, and there's a consens- a sense of obviously achievement, but a sense of fun. I smile when I think about those days, and to think that. <laughs> We were rebels without a clue, Greedy. What else do you want me to tell you? <laughs> well, so, so what moment do you identify? Because it's kind of you to say that, but I consider that to have happened well before I got there. I, I know that by the time I got to ESPN, it was considered the pinnacle. And everyone I knew when I told them, you're not going to believe this, but I just got hired at ESPN as a young broadcaster in Chicago, that was like getting called up to the majors. So that happened well before I got there. What moment do you identify as the one where you first said to yourself, wait a minute, something really special is happening here? Well, I'm going to give you an answer that you can predict and then one that that no one would predict. Mm -hmm. So when I first let let me go back on the bigger one. What moment were you sure that that we're off to, you know, into the galaxy? That would be, of course, 1987. I'm going to go back farther than that, though. 1987, when we got the rights to uh, Sunday night NFL games, just eight of them after Halloween, and then NFL primetime. But we were partners with the NFL. That you knew 
was the defining we're big time players. Okay. Now I'm going to give you something that hardly anyone will bring up. I want to say 83. There are other moments, and, and, you know, we don't have the time. I mean, there were personal moments when I would get recognized. Well, all right, personal moments would be I did the late show pretty much, the 2.30 uh, Eastern, for four years. I did our little football show, but I, I did that. And I get recognized out west in restaurants by some. Like, Really? But then you realize it was 1130 at night out there. They were getting off of work. But that's more of a personal. So 1983, I want to say it was 83, not 84. Um, it was the America's Cup. You wouldn't think I would bring up a sailboat race, right? Mm-hmm. The United States had won, like all of them, for 100 and whatever years, right? And this was the one that Australia won off Newport in, 80, in 83 with the wing keel and everything else. and. This was the seventh and final race, and it was in the afternoon. And there was a helicopter uh, at one of the Providence stations. And the Providence station, I think it was WJR, was telecasting it live, if you will, as you a sailboat race is not exactly, you know, a football game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so with no notice, about three hours before they set sail at 1 o'clock or whatever it was, um, ESPN made an agreement to pick up the feed. Well, it's all relative, and numbers don't mean much to people. But this is Tuesday afternoon at, say, 1 or 2 o'clock till 5. Unannounced. And who's watching us anyway then, back then, during the day, so we could say, hey, coming up in an hour. And that rated like a two and a half. Hmm. I know that sounds like nothing, but the point was, Anyone who was interested, and there was some more interest than just the sailors, you know, and, and this one, hell, the U.S. was going to lose a game on home field, if you will. And people turned to ESPN, well, maybe they have it. You know what I'm saying, Green? Yeah. Like, maybe they have it. They probably don't, but it's worth 10 seconds to see, and it was on, and people looked for us and found us for a sailboat race. That was I. I don't tell that story that often. I was okay. Like people know about us. So there's a moment you weren't expecting to hear. I do consider that one of the legendary early ESPN stories with the great Chris Berman. Okay, let's fast forward all the way to this week. I'm on TV on ESPN. I'm doing a highlight of the Raider game, and they have a receiver named Zay Jones. And I'm doing the highlight. He catches a touchdown. And involuntarily, the words come out of my mouth, oh, Zay, can you see Jones when he catches a touchdown? It it occurs to me, people will say, well, Chris Berman gave players nicknames. But that really isn't a nickname. Boomer is a nickname. What you did were these play on words for these legendary players. And, And that, I think, became the most famous thing about ESPN in the early days. How did that start? Well, or by the way, I hadn't even thought of Zay. Jim. You could go; he could go all the Zay. You could throw <laughs> that in there also. But, okay. but, um, well, look, I will be honest, and, and there's some in revisionist history, although nobody doubts this really. In those early days, there weren't that many games. Let's say a Tuesday night, okay? Mm-hmm. Baseball, which was our, really what we were showing, and 
cetera. There might be five games that were on TV. The rest are Kansas City 5, Seattle 2. And here's the score panel, and it's up there. And you are not so much entertaining people, but you're trying to give a little flair or color or describe the game. But you're staring, if you're a viewer, at Seattle 5, Kansas City 2. And one night, it would have been the, the, the spring or the summer of 80, our first baseball season, if you will, working at 2.30 in the morning, uh, which I don't care if that's your regular shift. Anyone that's worked the two or three shift can say 2.30 in the morning. You're not quite <laughs> – you know what I mean? You're not, you're not quite uh, level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had done these nicknames at college, just nicknaming players out of the box scores, you know, and with our sports uh, fan friends, and we'd have fun with it. And one or two of them came out. This was not a plan. This was not, hey, look at me, I'm Chris Berman, I'm going to be funnier or more noted than anyone else. That would be a complete lie. Um, One or two of them came out, and it was either Frank Tanana, Daiquiri, or John Mayberry, RFD. (laughs) They they both go back to my days at Brown, which was only a few years before. I graduated in 77, so this was, let's say, May of 1980. They came out. And I almost went, oh my, I, oh, my goodness, I said a George Carlin word. You know, I can't. What did I do? In the, As I'm speaking, you didn't do this, did you? And I hear, in, to those that don't work in our business, our little earpiece, it's called an IFB. Um, I hear a what <laughs> in my ear. And I actually see one of the camera people laughing a little bit. And the show ended, and I went, you know, that was okay. And the next night, maybe I used another one. It's not like, okay, here's 30 of them. And people seem to really respond. They're based, look, the beauty of them, not that I'm so smart, Greeny, but you didn't have to know, if I say Burt B. Home, Bly Levin, which is probably the best one, mm-hmm. you didn't have to know that he was a pitcher that he pitched for the Twins, Pirates, or fill in the team, that he had a great curveball, or eventually would be in the Hall of Fame. You didn't have to know that. What kid hadn't heard be home by 11, and what parent hadn't said be home by 11? So they were available to everyone. You didn't have to be really a sports fan. And look, Babe Ruth, say hey kids, splendid splinter. I don't have to explain it. This was a baseball thing where the only description was either in the newspaper or radio, but, you know, a lot of people never got close to a major league ballpark. And so the Splendid Splinter, for example, Ted Wynn, described how he looked, et cetera, Mm -hmm. right? So I kind of felt it was in reviving a lost art in in a different way. And I knew it was okay when I started getting lists of 50 or 100. or, <laughs> And I swear, if I laughed when I read one, it was on the air. <laughs> I can't say I invented over a 1,000 of them. It just is a game that everyone can play. I never did it to be famous. And I'm glad I did because it's it gets a smart Look, not all – look, if we're a painter, greedy, the majority of these are not Rembrandts, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
a lot of finger painting. But <laughs> so what? And that kind of just happened uh, organically, like most of ESPN did uh, in the early days. So when you watch Sports Center now or any sports show anywhere, and you hear catchphrases, do you think to yourself, I started that. That that was me. I, I was the one who first did that on TV. No, I don't ever think me anyway. Uh, look, the guys that uh, the two guys that influenced my highlight reading, and that's really what we're talking about here with, with nicknames, where catchphrases work is under video, right? When you're not looking right into the camera and trying right. to be a comedian. You know that. Mm-hmm. And so... Warner Wolf, and you say, let's go to the videotape. Now, that okay, that's one, but that's a phrase. And, and Howard Cosell with the halftime Monday Night Highlights and let, you know, let Gadam go. I mean, and, and that's an ode to him when I kind of do that. And and they were influenced by others, too, I, I'm sure. So, no, catchphr- catchphrases are good if they are augmenting facts and in the spirit of how you're delivering them and not look at me because you can overdo it. There's some nights, I mean, I'm going way back when, when I'd be on even more than you, which is almost hard to imagine these days. But, you know, we used to do 10 shows a week, the 7 and the 1130 Sports Center. That was 10 shows and then maybe football on the weekend and I wasn't alone, et cetera. And I finished shows and I go, you know, that was too much. People don't want all that. And it, but um, it, I, I don't think of me, and, and I hope that those using catchphrases, which can be descriptive and alliterative and however you want to do it, you do it as a part of them, not as a way to shine the light on them. So let's talk about a different element of all of this. People will say things about ESPN and SportsCenter in particular and the role that we've played in shaping the narrative in sports and the way sports are consumed. And in some cases, people will say we have influenced the way players play, all sorts of things. As one who was the biggest part of all of it while this was taking place, in what ways do you believe ESPN changed sports in America? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, in some ways, and we were a microcosm of the growth of cable, which in the 80s grew astronomically, not geometrically, if you will, or, or, or geometrically rather than uh, arithmetically. Let me, let me do it that way. Um, and so, therefore, we helped connect. This is how I look at it. I mean, we can have lots of theories on players showboating cameras we're not the only one with cameras out there showing things anyway but we helped connect sports fans um by showing as much as was out there and you know by the early 90s most uh, you know most all not most all the games but a lot of games were on etc etc and here's a highlight package from a college football game you might not have cared about but here's a minute and you're entertained by it or if someone was traveling, it, we were like your home station, your home uh, radio station. So if you're from Maine and you're going to Seattle and you're in a hotel room in the late 80s and you turn on you know, uh, Sports Center, you got your Red Sox highlights, if you will, or Patriots or whoever you follow, they're in Seattle and vice versa. 
And I think we, in a very good and positive way, I really believe this in my heart, um, kind of brought some folks together, including, and I shouldn't say including, maybe just more as important, those in the games, not even necessarily the players. Um, because seeing is believing in a lot of ways, as you know. And we help people see what was going on. It wasn't so much that we were smarter or our analysis is better than anywhere else. No, there's sports fans all over the place that know a ton of stuff and maybe express it much better than people like me. But we helped. We, I don't know, in our own way, I feel we're kind of a sense of community. I, I believe that, Greeny, that maybe that's that's looking through rose-colored glasses. But this stuff wasn't on until we did it. And we weren't alone, but we certainly were at the head of the class and continue to be. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that, now look, I don't want to get too deep, but if you, and you've heard me speak when I speak to a group or a bunch of folks that, what I never knew when I signed up for the job was that sports would be such a melting pot, that it doesn't matter what you make, what the color of your skin is, what your sex is, et cetera, et cetera, who you even root for. But we all can have a discussion Monday of a such-and-such such game. And, again, that might be rose-colored, but I, I your glasses, but I believe, and certainly in this day and age, we, we can use a little something that's common ground, and I know you believe that, and that, that's why – ESPN is, quote, as important. We're not important, but people smile, most of them, when they see us, and I hope they always feel that way. I, I do. Let's talk about football, which is the sport that I think most people will identify you with forever, um, and not only because you did primetime forever, which I, I think is probably the, the single. If you, if you put a gun to my head and said you have to pick the single best sport television show ever, it would be that for all of those years. But how about the games themselves? Let's talk about the greatest game. If you had to pick the most memorable football game you ever covered, could you do it? Memorable football game I ever covered. And I got to pick one. You don't have uh, to. Well, you can no, pick no, a no, few. No, I'm, not, I'm not begging for more room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you always go to hmm, that I was that I covered. So we're 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 taking out stuff that I might have been there in person. Younger, like the Jets championship game with Namath in 68, or I was working for NBC in college when Carlton Fisk hit a homer at Fenway that you might remember in game six of 75. I mean, the, but we're not counting that. I, I was there, as I like to say, I remember because I was there. So covering, well, I've run the clip. We've run the clip 500 times. I still go to the catch. If you're asking me one football game, mm -hmm. and the reason I go there is we were new, ESPN. Um, the whole bit of covering it like this was me, Tom Riley, producer, Greg Wade, photographer. He flew out to San Francisco. We're, so what was I, 26 then? And we, I had, I got, you know, got to know that team a little bit a couple of days before. They had seen the Swami pick them every week all year, which I had no idea they did, but I found out. And because now I can look at history for it, Greedy, history. 
we didn't know, none of us knew that day that as big a play as Joe Montana to the late Dwight Clark uh, was monumental, and then they went on to win the Super Bowl, those 49ers, two weeks later. They beat Dallas in the championship game. But that was the start of 15, 20 years of, of brilliance right there. So I'm adding on the luxury of history. You know, that could have been the greatest play and finish, and then San Francisco wasn't anything after that, you know? So I, I will say this in football, that when we were younger, most of the Super Bowls were blowouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the last 20 years, I'm just picking a number, 15, 14 are, whoa, finishes. I mean, every Patriot one was a, whoa, the wins and the losses. The Seattle one is unbelievable. The one they beat the Rams was unbelievable. The, the one the Giants beat them with, you know, with the, with the, the Tyrese one catch off the helmet with the. We allege, as the SB said, bubblegum on, on, on there, and that's why it's stuck. <laughs> hmm. But, I mean, you could do those, and you could look at Pittsburgh and Arizona. Like, that one was unbelievable. So these Super Bowls lately have been, oh, my goodness. But I'll go back to, to Joe, to Dwight. Uh, two became lifelong friends of mine. Um, and we lost Dwight a couple years ago at ALS. And uh, so time has made it even bigger and we had one shot at that stand-up on the field, Greeny, because they were flooding it. <laughs> we, you better deliver this. You know, it's not take two. Let's do it again. No, no. <laughs> like you have one shot right here. That means the camera. That means the producer. That means me. And we didn't flub it as youngsters. And uh, Dwight Clark didn't flub it, and we didn't either. So I, if, if you say one, I don't think you begrudge me that one, do you? Best regular season game I've ever seen, um, we just celebrated recently, is the one game those great Bears lost at, at the Orange Bowl to Don Shula in 1985, 18-1, and one, and that was their loss, and it was magic. And and the old 72 Dolphins were there, and Zonka and Kick, who we just lost recently, and, and they're all on the sidelines, and it was, whoa, okay. So Shula brought these guys out here tonight. The Bears are not winning this, and mm-hmm. it was – so that would be a regular season game. But I'll go with the catch. Then let's talk about the legendary players. You just mentioned Montana, obviously, and he's as, as great a legend as the sport has ever produced. But I'm, I'm thinking you, Chris Berman, growing up in the Shea Stadium stands in the 60s, me growing up in the Shea Stadium stands in the 70s, that kid, to, to, to those kids, who were the greatest legends? Who were the football legends that – if you live to be 100, you will remember absolutely everything about them. Well, the, the tip, you know, number one to both of us probably is Joe Namath. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to be a little older. Well, I don't know if I'm fortunate to be older <laughs> than you, but I saw almost all the games he ever played there at Chase Stadium because Dad bought season tickets for $8 a game. How about that? Um, and um, so I would think that Joe Namath is the head of my personal list, and I've told him many times, you know, you're – one of the biggest reasons why I'm doing this, I've told him and Willie Mays that, which, of course, that's baseball. Um, so I, I, I go back to, to yesteryear. Now, of the ones I got to know, and I don't mean to then stop there as the legend. Oh, so you want to talk about when we were young, right? So I'm going to, and it became, a, you know, AFL was almost like a thing of the 60s to be 
rebellious. So all the great AFL players, not only on the Jets, which were our, you know, but the guys that I've gotten to know, Hall of Famers on those Kansas City Chiefs, the next year win the Super Bowl, the Willie Lanier's, and there'll be a lot of more defensive guys. Um, but there are some. Now, I want to go a little bit very early in my professional career because I'm not veering too far off yet because we were still fans in the 80s, even though I was on TV. First time I met and interviewed Walter Payton, hmm. there was something different. Uh, he was about two weeks away from breaking Jim Brown's record for rushing greenies. So that would have been 84. And... What was it, 12-3-20, 12-3-12? Well, he was about to break it in a week or two, and we went out and so humble, so, you know, oh, my God, it's Walter Payton. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, that, he didn't care. And did I know him unbelievably well? No. But um, certainly as time went on, it did. And we lost him way too soon, obviously. And that would be one early in my professional career that, whoa, um, of course, Joe Montana became a a, a a friend, and so we were we we're, were about the same age, and and I could go on with all those guys, and then I would be remiss again. I'm kind of bending your question a little because we could go on with names from '60s and '70s forever. I mean, we all watched Johnny Unitas, and 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 we all watched Jim Brown, or I did, and we all watched Gail Sayers, who unfortunately we have just lost. Um, but. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't professionally mention Jim Kelly and, and, and those Bills who, for some reason, adopted me like I was a member of their team. And we all can call each other today. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but 40-plus years in the business. We'll, look, we are in the business because we love sports and what it brings to us. And you realize that a lot of the athletes actually are fans also of the game they play and maybe others. And so you have, not with all, but with a lot, a lot in common. And when you can put down, well, they're the quarterback and you're an announcer and better be nice or say, or you can't credit, you put all that down and you talk about music or whatever. I mean, how, who has a better job than us, right? So I kind of took that question a little I slalom down the uh, down the uh, the ski slope there a little bit on you, but I'm sorry to do that. It's not the first time I've gone long on a producer. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite stories, if I if I may, uh, along those lines, and it has nothing to do with this, but there is a legendary one of the legendary Boomer stories was. You used to always, on the Monday of Super Bowl week, do the evening sports center. You would come to town. Mike and I would be there. We'd be doing our morning show. And then you would come, and you would come to the evening sports center. And, and if anyone has ever seen Chris Berman walk into a room, it's in every, literally every person gathers around you. And you're, the, the producer at the time was Seth Markman. You're going to know the story I'm telling, who now runs all of football at ESPN. But he was desperately trying to get you to sit in the chair so you could do the show. And no one will leave you alone. And you're talking to this person and that person and shaking this guy's hand and that guy's hand and uh, taking pictures. And everyone is all around you. And he's freaking out. And it's like five minutes before we're set to go on. And you just turned to him. I'll never forget it. And you said, Seth, this just in. I've done this before. And like, like everything is going to be just fine here. I got this. And then you sat down with absolutely no preparation whatsoever. 
and just looked at the camera and just started talking. I remember thinking to myself, that's why he's Chris Berman. And that those are the kinds of things. So if you want to go long on a story here, I am perfectly comfortable with it. I didn't mean to do that, and thank you for that story. Look, I'm not alone. We all look. We're we, we are doing sports. Let's not forget that. You know, there are times when there are very serious stories. Needless to say, that and, and this year would be at the head of all of them. But um, uh, look, we, we are we're seen every night. We're back in those days when I was on all the time, along with many others. And but we look into a lens. Right, so people go, how is that? It was when you broadcast it, you know, a couple million people are out there. Well, no, we're not on stage as at a theater, you know, live theater, which I have the utmost respect for actors and actresses who do that. Uh, or dare we say a comedian when your first three jokes don't work and nobody's laughing. Well, we're looking into a lens. And so we got to assume that we don't think of tons of folks out there, but we know they're out there. At least as time went on. In the beginning, we were <laughs> we were used as a nightlight, Greeny, back mm-hmm. you know back then. But um, so when you have a chance to see them, and if they gathered around me, that means they gathered around us. That means they were football fans. It was the Super Bowl. They may have been fans of the two teams in it, although that's early in the wee. They just may be there because they love football. And if you don't have time to hang out a little bit with those who've been hanging out with me and us, although we never saw them, then what good are we? We're, we're, we're not here if it's not for those folks. So, you know, hey, what do you think of the so-and-sos? Answer the question. <laughs> now, there are, there are, yeah, I guess, 30 seconds to air. We got to sit down in the chair, right, and put our <laughs> earpiece in and put our mic on. You know, there have been a couple of prime times when I I didn't (laughs) – the opening theme, which was only 30 seconds, I might add, uh, was on. And I was just coming in the studio, and Tommy's sitting there like with (laughs) half laughing, half not fear. He'd seen it a million times. And you don't get your ear in, but you get that little mic that we clip on our our ties, and I held it in my hand. Did a whole first segment holding it like it was a stick mic. <laughs> uh, there's reasons, a funny story of why that happened, but so what? It doesn't matter. And I, now all I did before we started, I looked at Tom. I said, if they only knew. All right, what's the first game? Colts, uh, Patriots. Let's go. And uh, but I don't know. I was a history major at Brown Greeny, and I wrote my term papers late too. So I guess this has been ingrained in me before I got on ESPN. It's the way I am. This is such a pleasure and such a privilege for me. And and I just want to say that I want to, one of the reasons I wanted to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you as part of this podcast is that I wanted to personally thank you for creating a world where a kid like me who grew up loving sports and was not good enough to play could make a career and a life for myself the way that I have. You are a huge part of the reason for that, and I'll always be grateful. And so I thank you for this time, and I thank you for everything you have done for all of the generations of sports announcers and sports fans who have come behind you and who will always appreciate all that you have done. Well, I, I, I say you're very kind with your words. Um, there are a lot of people whose names people will never know that that, that – deserve as much as you've not certainly more credit than me um it was a good idea which i certainly had nothing to do with um 
um, except that I thought when I applied for the job that but this might work, and if not, it's fun. And um, it, it, I'm honored to be part of those who put the cornerstone in to something that everybody knows what ESPN stands for, but we're continuing to do that, and you're one of those carrying the torch these 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 years and really these decades as you move forward. And there are many who've carried the torch whose names we know, and many we don't. And every one of them uh, deserves a hand for that success. So you've overblown my importance, but I, I accept your uh, your thank you and uh, keep up a good job yourself. My so that is my conversation with Chris Berman. Again, my endless thanks to him for taking this time and just for being who he has been in my life, both as an ESPN person and just as a sports fan since I'm 12 years old. Uh, Chris Berman has been omnipresent, and it means the world to me that he took this time. And I would ask you to do me one favor. If you enjoy these long-form interviews, which is something I really love, it would be very encouraging if you would let me know that by subscribing, rating, and viewing this podcast. Please, if you have a moment, subscribe to our podcast here. I'm interested. You get to hear all the interviews. A new one will pop up whenever we put a new one out. If you would give us a rating and a review, that would be extremely helpful and encouraging. If you like these long-form interviews, I'd like to know you like them and want me to keep doing them. If you do, I will. So please subscribe and rate and review this podcast. I'm interested. We'll have a new edition next week. Thank you so much for taking this time. I'm Greeny, and I'll see you soon.